This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Great to have you with us on the afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. Podcast on today's episode. We are talking about UAE property laws, an awful lot of confusion around. So we were seeking advice from the best in the business. Scott Hutton from EKP was on hand as we talked rental increases, checks, off plan and knowing your rights. We're also in conversation with Mathilde Lujain. After converting to Islam in her teens, she's written the book that she wished she had read back then, interviewing people from all different walks of life on their journey to Islam, especially when it comes to women. What is some of her advice as we move into the holy month of Ramadan? And it was getting back to work, an untapped resource of very keen women who've had career breaks and are desperate to get back into the office in conversation with one company who's created a returnship programme and two of the women that are benefiting from it. I'm getting ready for the text lines to go a little bit bananas because we are talking property law this afternoon. Joining me live in the studio is Scott Hutton. He's lawyer, managing partner of EKP's Dubai office. And thank you for making the time because I know you're very, very busy over there, Scott. To give us a bit of a flavour of things that you can help with us this afternoon, what's keeping you busy at the minute? Sure. Thanks, Helen. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Delighted to be here. Um, what's keeping me busy? Like, a lot of what I suspect we're going to hear about today is going to be, well, there'll be a number of tenancy issues, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, rents have gone through the roof in the last mm-hmm. 12 months or so. Um, so landlords are looking to take advantage of that. Tenants are often suffering, and that's there's an awful lot of this around. So anyone that's thinking about making a call, uh, please do, because it's very common. And we're all about establishing everybody's rights on both sides. So yeah. we are going to try and help as many people as possible. Um, what do you, some, do you think some of the big kind of myths and misconceptions are around right now? What are some of the things that you, you find yourself going, that's just not true and I don't know why this keeps kind of perpetuating as truth in the property front? Well, the 12-month notice has, has always been the the stickler and where it's caused, the, caused issues, but the market's got used to that now. Um, so I think the market has generally become more educated. Mm-hmm. However, um, I understand why landlords want to increase their rent because they've gone, they've gone crazy, right? So it's understandable. However, there are rules in place and there are effectively rent restrictions that we're faced with in an awful lot of places in the world. Let's get the text line. As I said, we've had an awful lot. Um, anonymous message, and you can, of course, leave your name off. That's absolutely fine. Saying landlord is kicking us out in October because he said he's selling the property. But there's no sign at all that there are no viewings, etc. I think he's going to try and pull a fast one and try and remarket it for a higher rental value. I understand this is illegal. If this does happen, what's the process in calling him out? And what evidence and money do you need to do this? Thank you. Before we get to that specific question, can you explain a little bit about what does a landlord or lady um, need to be doing in order to effectively serve that notice? And what are some of the reasons they can give in order to sell that property or take it back under their name? Okay, so there are only, by law, there are only three circumstances in which a landlord can evict a tenant at expiry of the lease. That's if he wants to sell it, use it for his own 
personal purposes or for a first degree relative. Yes, that's what I'm going to say. The okay. little grey area. Yeah. Um, how a first degree? Okay, but yeah. go on. Mm-hmm. Um, or three, has to do major repairs that cannot be done with the tenant in situ and that requires planning permission. Okay, right? so, that, be, so you need to have that documentation. Yeah, that's well. got to go through the municipality. So these are the only circumstances in which a landlord can legally evict and he serves a 12-month notice which must be served by or through the notary public or by registered mail. Email notice. WhatsApp? No. No, definitely not. And the RDC, the Rent Dispute Centre, have been very strong on this. They've made it very clear that this must be a formal notice. So question to you, dear listener. Was that notice served properly? First point. Second point. If uh, there are no signs that this property is going to be sold, and indeed it might just pop up on a property website in, you know, in a few weeks' time after this, after this listener leaves, what's the process then, Scott? What, what, what rights do you have and, and how do you navigate that process? Okay. Um, I think it's worth saying that you mentioned, Helen, we're, we're representing both sides here. Um, and a lot of this will sound very tenant-friendly and it's not necessarily designed that way, but it's the circumstances we're facing. So landlord serves you notice, valid notice, at expiry of the lease, you have to leave. Landlord doesn't have to prove that he's actually selling it, right? It's not on him. However, he cannot then subsequently rent it to someone else without first offering it back to that original tenant, right? And that's where the breach of the law comes in, if you like. It's the re-renting it rather than the not selling it. And the re-renting it, I don't know, let's say, that's, 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 that's 60 grand on just for, just for yeah. argument's sake. Okay. Look, we've seen rents double um, in places, you know, and it, it, it's bonkers. And it's unsustainable, to my mind. So in terms of that um, second part, that message saying, if this does indeed happen, what's the process in calling him out? And what evidence and indeed money do you need to, in order to do that? It's actually a pretty straightforward process. And the RDC, they say, have been pretty strong on it. You make a claim to the RDC, so Rent Dispute Centre, staffed by Dubai court judges, but it's an awful lot quicker, an awful lot cheaper than Dubai court's process. They aim to make their decisions. This is through two levels of appeal within 75 days. So from a tenant's perspective, you just need to establish that it's been re-rented mm-hmm. and you, the courts can access the Ajari system. So it's, it's black and white. Yeah, the new names will be there. in studio for a property law special is Scott Hutton. He is the lawyer managing partner at EKP's Dubai office and um, hope you had a coffee during that quick break, Scott, because you can be very busy indeed. Uh, going to the text line, simple question. I don't know if it's a simple answer. You'll tell me, Scott, is there a ceiling on how much the landlord can increase the rent? There is. The maximum increase is 20% um, and it depends on where your rent sits relative to the market rent in your area. Now, there's a rent calculator on the land department website that will tell you where your rent sits, but you know it's, it's not entirely accurate. So, for example, where I live, I'm in an old villa. They've just built brand new villas next door, same size, but you're not comparing like for like there. So you can a landlord can ask, or either party can ask for the land department to do a specific survey on the rental value of your property. So it's not such a market average then. And for that 20% cap to kick in, you have to be paying 40% below market. Okay. 
Makes sense. Okay, hope that helps. So I'm going to say send us some maths our way. Don't send me any maths. Scott might be able to take on some property for you. Um, a message here saying, good afternoon, hope you can help. I bought an apartment with an existing tenancy contract. I took over the contract, made a name change amendment to the contract to reflect that I'm the new owner. However... The tenants are not signing the amended contract nor changing the security deposit over to me. Do I actually need a signature on the amended contract? And is there anything I can do to secure my security deposit? Okay, so when you buy a property, you become the de facto landlord, right? If it's tenanted, you step into the shoes of the former landlord. Doesn't necessarily need a change, but the good practice is to get that name change, which it sounds like has already been done here. Um, going forward with that, the rent, or sorry, the security deposit is an issue because that should probably have been dealt with at the time of sale because if the tenant has paid their security deposit to the previous landlord... Oh, they've just had it off with that then. <laughs> yeah, um, and you can't expect the tenant to pay Twice. the second one. No. So that should have been managed at the sale um, and should have been allocated between the parties at that point. So if it hasn't been done... You know, unfortunately, the the caller here has a potentially an issue. Okay, hope that helps. Um, a message here uh, about checks again. I got multiple checks from a tenant and I signed a paper saying I'd received them. Now one of the checks has bounced and the tenant wants to either swap check with another one or pay online. Can you please tell me what documentation I should keep for either one of those possible rectifying options? Thank you. Well, the. Bounce check issue, um, those of us that have been around here a while um, are all... Well How long have you been here, Scott? <laughs> 15 years. Same as me, okay. <laughs> um, so we've seen this this law change and it was always, you, you always ran terrified of a bounce check. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the law around it has changed and it's, it, it is still a criminal offence. However, checks below 200,000 dirhams, you're not going to go to jail for any longer. Um, so if it were me as, as a landlord, if I had received a bounce check, I would be getting confirmation from the bank that it's bounced, which you should get um, as a matter of fact. Um, and it's probably worth a police report just to get the evidence. And that's something you can hold back and potentially use later if you mm-hmm. have to. However, the practicalities here, if the tenant's willing to pay, then the offence of bouncing a check disappears. Right, if they're willing to pay to replace that check, you know, when they make that payment, again, it's just be given a receipt that both parties should sign. Okay, hope that helps. All the very best with that. Um, a message here saying, I'd like to sell my tenant studio in Dubai. Are there any restrictions, notices, or tenant rights that I need to be aware of? The tenancy is into its third year, commenced in January. Can I give notice today to my tenant that I will not be renewing as I plan to sell, or can I sell during the current tenancy? Yes, you can sell during the current tenancy. The prudent practice would be to serve the 12-month notice on the tenant that you intend to sell. Mm -hmm. And that at least gives a buyer some options when they move or become the landlord. But selling a tenanted property, it happens all the time and the tenancy effectively transfers from the seller to the buyer who becomes the new landlord. And the tenancy terms remain in place until expiry of the lease. Okay. We've had a follow-up message regarding the security deposit that's gone to the previous um, landlord saying, I have the security deposit, but it's a cheque that's addressed to the old landlord. What would you advise there, Scott? I know that's interesting. It's worthless. Um, By a matter of fact, you know, if I have a cheque in your name, there's not an awful lot (laughs) I can do with it. 
Um, so that is one where the tenant should be willing to change the check if they're not. They go to the RDC. Like I say, they are receptive. They're good to deal with. They deal with things pretty quickly. You can go into RDC, have this resolved pretty quickly. They probably deal with this a mediation and it should be finished very quickly. Hope that helps. All the very best. We've got lots of questions coming in for Scott Hutton this afternoon. We are having a bit of a property special and we've had a number of messages getting in touch about off-plan um, purchases. So we're going to be coming to those um, just after half past. Um, I don't know if you can help with this and by all means say not your area. Mona's saying, any advice for getting a mortgage? We're in our 50s, new to Dubai and have our own business, which is proving problematic. Oh no, you're raising your eyebrows. Oh no. Um, it's not that easy. Well, yeah, it's certainly not that easy to get a mortgage um, and the documentation required is difficult and a foreign bank is unlikely to be able to register a mortgage here unless they're registered with the central bank. But one way I've seen things like that work are your bank where you have a relationship overseas can work with a local bank as a security agent. So the local bank would take a mortgage over your property, Mm -hmm. but the lender would be your overseas bank and they have an agreement between themselves. So your lender can't get a direct mortgage, but they can Mm. work around that with a security agent. So that might be best option there. Okay, a bit bit of a workaround. Okay, hope that helps, Mona. All the very best. Scott Hutton's in the studio, lawyer, managing partner at EKP's Dubai office, and we're having a bit of a property special. Now, don't forget, you're more than welcome to get in touch on the SMS, on the WhatsApp, or indeed the ARN Play app, or you can do as Annie has done and join us live on the line. Annie, tell us a little bit about your situation. I understand you bought an off-plan property quite a while ago. Tell us a little bit about that circumstance. All right, so I purchased it off-plan in 2008 from a very, very well-known uh, developer here. However, as you know, in 2008 or 2009, the financial crisis happened. Therefore, this project was never built. And every time that I followed up with the developer, I was told that it is on hold. And they were very careful with the wording that they were using uh, because if they had said it was cancelled, then they were due uh, compensation. However, recently I've been getting calls constantly that I should go and get my initial down payment uh, and that I will not be paid any compensation. And um, yes, so I don't know what I can do because based on the contract, it's very clear that they should pay me uh, compensation because they're canceling the project finally after all these years. Um, however, they're uh, not willing to put anything on uh, on, on paper or on email. All these calls are just on uh, mm. uh, just, just all uh, verbal. Okay, uh, yes, all verbal. All yes. right, Annie. Let's see what Scott's got to say. Hi, Annie. Um, thanks for the call. Look, the bad news here is you're one of the unlucky ones. Timing is not good. The, there are rules in place, and there were rules in place in 2008 to protect you. However, they perhaps weren't policed as well as they could be. And then we saw changes post the crisis. Now, the law says, so Law 13 of 2008 says that, or as amended, in the event that the developer or the project is cancelled by order of RERA, then the buyer shall be refunded the full amount paid. However, the practicalities of that are, it's extremely unlikely. With developments now, if a project is cancelled, there'll be money in the escrow account. And what we saw 
in 2008 was that escrow accounts were not being policed, they were not being properly used, so monies were not necessarily going into the correct place. And you know, certainly when I arrived 2008, we had the off-plan launches, people queuing around the, the building, guy at the front of the queue selling to the guy at the back of the queue for, for a massive uplift. And anecdotally, we've heard stories about the developer taking that money from the off-plan sales and buying plot two and plot three rather than putting it into the escrow account, which is what happens now. So that doesn't help you any, Annie, and I'm, I'm sorry, but the practice or the procedure for you now is you have to go and register your complaint with the cancellation committee at the land department. So the cancellation committee consists of Dubai court judges and it operates through the, the land department. So you go and register your claim there, you show details of your purchase, and essentially you sit and wait. They will liquidate the project, they'll get as much value out of it as they can, and then that money will be dispersed to the investors. It's you know, my experience of the, the projects that were launched back in the day, chances are you're not getting a massive percentage back, I'm afraid. If it were to happen now, I'd be pretty confident you're getting most, if not all, of your money back. But with those these older ones, the money just isn't there. The bottom line is not in the escrow account. Annie, I wish we had better news for you, but I hope that's a bit of a a bit of a plan, a bit of a first step. Thank you. For, I think it's really important to understand just exactly what you know people have been through and indeed what what steps you can take. Annie, wishing you all the very best with that. And, and Helen, probably worth saying, look, it does sound very negative, but go and register Why not? your claim. You'll get, I would have thought you'll get something because mm-hmm. there's some value in there. Mm-hmm. And this committee's role is just to liquidate all the assets and pass it back out to the investors. Okay, staying with them um, with off plan. Maria's saying, I've got an off plan townhouse that was supposed to be handed over December of last year. However, it's been delayed until the end of this year. I've registered under my name. However, if I'm not able to take a mortgage at the end of the year to pay the remaining 40% of its price, what happens to the property and what can I do to prevent any financial loss? Great question. Thanks, Maria. Yeah, thanks, Maria. That is an interesting one. Again, another potentially frightening answer, perhaps. But the worst case scenario here is if you do not make that payment, the property can be the pro- or the sale can be cancelled. Property returns to the developer, and the developer is entitled to compensation. In that scenario, if the property is complete, you would probably get to keep forty percent of the purchase price. Mm-hmm. So you might get twenty percent back there. Now. What you need to do is look at the realities of this. If you can't get a mortgage, if you can't fund that final purchase, you are committed to make this payment. So your options are find that money or there's no reason, unless your contract says otherwise, you should be able to sell it. Okay. I hope that helps. A few options there, Maria. Fatty's saying, what recourse is there if an apartment bought off plan is smaller than the plans? This is an interesting one to me. And I, I'm a construction and real estate lawyer, so I understand the construction industry. And the law says if the unit is smaller by 5% or less, forget it. You know, it's, it's, deemed it's de minimis. It's too small to worry about. Mm-hmm. But I have a problem with that. Mm. It, it's my 5%. Yeah, too right. Just build what you agreed to build. And 5% over hundreds of apartments, certainly adding up to someone getting some cash out of that Absolutely. situation. And look, you can be sure if the contractor doesn't build what he's obliged to build, he's going to be paying penalties to the developer Mm -hmm. and they don't necessarily get passed on to the buyer. But if it's more than 5% smaller, you're entitled to a pro rata reduction in price. So if it's 6% smaller, 6% reduction in price, 10% 
um, smaller 10% reduction in place, price. And that goes on until the unit becomes materially or substantially smaller, in which case you'd be entitled to cancel the contract and get a full refund. Is However, there, yeah, go on. I'm, yeah, you're on it. You're on, on the it. point. What's the what point? is materially, substantially smaller? Mm-hmm. And you look at Dubai court, um, civil court or civil law judges who each look at each dispute subjectively. So your opinion and what is materially smaller and my opinion. And whoever's in the chair different. tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Hope that helps, buddy. I hope it is so, 5%. Who knows? But hope you hope you get the answers that you need. And while we're on it, the flip side is if it's larger, mm. and this is something to be really aware of with your contracts, the law says a developer cannot charge any more unless your contract says otherwise. Okay. And guess what? Your contract says otherwise. Yeah, because they've been through this before. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, all right, I hope that helps. Question from Mark saying, how do I get a property handed over after a long delay and bankruptcy of the developer? Developer has failed to deliver the unit as per the SBA and is currently in bankruptcy proceedings. Completion is delayed for many years. The unit should be handed over shortly by the trustee. Can you please guide me on the strategy of the investors to get compensation for that delay? That's an interesting one. Um, and thanks, Mark. I feel a little bit like the, the Grim Reaper here. You know, no, at, at some useful. point I'll have some good news. It's, I'll find um, one for you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the position here, essentially, the developer is still in there, right? The developer still exists, but it's developer brackets in bankruptcy. So the trustee, as you mentioned, Mark, the trustee is now in control of it. So when the property is handed over by the trustee, which is effectively by the developer, you are entitled to compensation in accordance with your contract. However, the fact that they're in bankruptcy suggests that there isn't a great deal of money there. Mm-hmm. So what you would do is you would rank in the bankruptcy. So you submit your claim to the trustee um, in accordance with your contract and you get a, if you're lucky, you get a pro rata um, payout once the bankruptcy is complete. Mark, thank you for that message. I hope it all gets resolved. It's been a bit, we've run out of time. We have run out of questions. I know, it's absolutely flying. Scott, thank you so much for your expertise this afternoon. I think you've explained something, honestly, some concepts that I've really struggled to grasp over the last couple of years and, and really feel like I've understand things a whole lot more. So thank you for your time today. For anyone that wants to contact you, maybe they haven't felt comfortable coming on air today um, or needs a bit more in-depth advice, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Sure, you can get hold of us in any of the social media, um, normal ways. Uh, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Instagram. Um, we're based in the DIFC, EKP Legal, www.ekplegal.com and you'll find all our details. If you do, if you missed that, just send me the word law. I'd be happy to send you a link. Scott Hutton, absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Really, really do appreciate your time. We're meeting the author this hour and since her conversion to Islam at the age of 18, uh, Matilda Lujain has uh, crossed paths with women from all different walks of life and this has culminated in a stunning book that's sitting right beside me now. It is called Big Little Steps, talking about women, women, femininity, uh, myths and misconceptions. And it is part memoir, part manual. So I had a Ramadan. I'm so honoured to have you in the studio. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I mean, I'm, I expect to be completely enlightened by our conversation today, and I'm sure lots of listeners will have questions for you as well. So we're very much taking those. If you do have any questions for Matilda on 4001, tell us then, because you, as I said, you converted there at age 18. Where are you from and where did you grow up, Mathilde? So I'm French originally. I grew up in Oman. 
Um, and yes, I did convert at the age of 18. I was a teenager in high school uh, in 12th grade uh, in Oman, in Muscat at the time. Uh, so just to give you a bit of background, my family's atheists. Um, so I didn't really grow up with the nation of God or spirituality or faith in my family. Um, and these notions really came naturally to me at a very young age. I was around maybe eight or nine years old when I became interested and, and started feeling spiritual and asking questions to my parents and those around me. Um, so being in France at the time, I actually asked my parents if I could become a Christian. And they were very supportive. Uh, even though they were atheists at the time, they wanted to encourage me to explore my spirituality, which was great. Um, so I did that. I got baptized and I became Christian. And then uh, a year after that, my parents moved to Oman. And then I was obviously um, uh, exposed to many different cultures, mm -hmm. as we are, are here in Dubai as well. And I think it just kind of expanded my um, my horizons on being more open-minded to other religions and the way that other people practice their religion and, and their faith. Um, so having said that, it was honestly a very gradual process. I uh, looked into different religions. And um, at one point, I was like, you know, I live in Oman, it only makes sense that I read the Quran, just so that I understand the people better and the culture. Um, so I started reading the Quran. And then I was hooked. I didn't let it down. It was a page turner for me. I would read it every day. And then I went back to my parents and I said, Actually. mom and dad, can I convert to Islam? And, uh, you know, we had a conversation with them uh, together as a family. Um, and I remember an imam came to my house and it was very much a family mm -hmm. um, process. Um, and I felt very encouraged by my parents and they weren't judging. They were very accepting. So um, and I know not all, all converts have this experience with their families, but I think um, I was very fortunate in that sense. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Because, you know, we say the word converted and it sounds so instant. And, it, yeah. you know, of, of course, there is that moment. Mm -hmm. But in, in the leading up to it, can you tell us about some of the research you were doing, some of the learnings you had and how you were supported by family, but also, you know, the, the community around sure. you? Sure. So um, I read a lot of books and uh, I just went to my school library and asked the librarian, um, who was actually a Muslim woman, to kind of guide me to uh, as to what I should be reading. So I brought a lot of books home. Um, to be very honest, they felt very heavy. And, and look, this was back in 2001. Okay, So uh, I didn't have, it's not, I think today we have a, a lot more material that's and, much yeah, more. And breadth of information exactly. as well. I mean, your book, obviously, you know, a really important part of that. Yeah. Also the internet then as well. Yes. You know, it was only really just starting exactly. to, to become a bit more mainstream. Right. So you were having to get all the information that you could. Yeah. So I, I think the school librarian really helped me. Uh, she also introduced me to some people who um, kind of guided me and answered some of the questions that that I had in my mind, even through while I was reading the Quran, you know, I didn't have um, the context of these revelations. And so I, I think it was really helpful having someone who's Muslim who could answer um, these questions. And so it was community was very important. And yeah, I guess it's that it's, it's going from the, the theory to the practice, isn't it? It's yeah. like, this is what you read, but what, what are the real life applications going to be? Which exactly. is, you know, what you really explore through the book. Yes. We're joined now by author Mathilde through her book, Big Little Steps. She's sharing her personal experiences of studying, grief, moving abroad, work, marriage, 
all with Islam in mind. It's a really personal but also really practical insight into her conversion. And thank you so much for being so honest and open about it all through the book and also today. I think it's incredibly valuable whether you are familiar with Islam, which I think a lot of people have really enjoyed reading your experiences, but also someone like me who, despite living in the Middle East for more than 16 years, I feel woefully undereducated in it. I think it's such an accessible book. So thank you. Thank Um, you. Tell us a little bit about that time, uh, about that decision to convert. Did you have any hesitations, Mathilde? So I... Look, yes and no. Um, I had many hesitations because at the time, um, September 11 had just happened and I was really worried about how people will start to perceive me and how they will judge me. Um, and it's, I was still a teenager as well. So I think it's also a time when you're still trying to find yourself and try to prove that you can blend in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I think I was desperate to show everyone, um, around me, you know, at school or my parents that I hadn't changed. I was still the same. And spirituality is still very much, is very much within and, um, and so uh, I think hesitations came from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that going to change my life? How will I be perceived? Um, but in terms of, you know, choosing the right religion for me, I was absolutely convinced and that I didn't have a doubt in my mind. So what were some of the common questions or misconceptions that you initially encountered? And then also through conversations as you moved from Amman to Dubai and obviously with your family and friends back home in France, were there anything that became quite, well, you know, just common things you were coming up against? Yeah. um, So, you know, I I do feel like being a Muslim, a lot of my friends come to me asking questions and I I felt like I kind of became an ambassador for Islam. And I was, I'm really grateful that they can come to me for these questions and, you know, without any judgment or anything. And and I think it's healthy to have these discussions. Um, uh, So I would say the status of women in Islam and women's rights is something that comes back uh, a lot. And I made it a point in my book to have a whole chapter dedicated to women and to highlight these rights and um, highlight, you know, it was just International Women's Day a few days ago and it's, it was all about equity. And so um, that was something that was really important to me in the mm-hmm. book um, to really lay out all the facts uh, once and for all and anyone who is curious to find out more about, you know, equality of women in Islam can um, have all their, their answers, questions uh, their questions answered in the book. So yeah, that was really important for me. Are there any um, misconceptions that you feel like you just are getting so frustrated about the perpetuation of? Yeah, you know, um, you know, definitely. Um, I think some misconceptions are getting a bit old and um, I'm French. So obviously in France, there's a huge debate around uh, women, uh, Muslim women covering Covering. themselves Mm -hmm. in the hijab. Um, I mean, my sister-in-law wears the hijab and she's a teacher. If she was teaching in France, she wouldn't be able to wear the hijab at school. And um, luckily now she moved to Abu Dhabi so she can can wear the hijab as a teacher. As a a choice. Yeah, as a choice. And I feel just... uh, you know, it just annoys me whenever I go back to France. It's very redundant to hear these issues on a daily basis. Um, and I would think that by now, you know, there would be a different um, conversation and, and that w- there would be more 
openness and they would be more open-minded. So Messages come in from Beth saying, Hi both, I'm a huge feminist. Something I learned about Islam recently is that polygamy in Islam is only allowed if the first wife consents to you having a second. Take a third, the two must agree and so forth. I also didn't know that you also have to treat the wives equally, including things and how much spend you time to spend time with them. This isn't widely acknowledged enough. Thank you, Beth. Um, and a question, no name on this one, saying, um, did the local Muslim community welcome you and do you feel like you belong? Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for these questions and comments. Um, so definitely, I think that was something that I didn't know about Islam before I became a Muslim is the community. And it's what we call the ummah in Arabic. So the sense of community is very strong in Islam. And I was welcomed by everybody. I mean, it, you know, here I go to a couple of Islamic centers where there are other converts uh, that, that go there from all walks of life, um, all different nationalities, all ages. Uh, and everyone's been so welcoming uh, in the UAE and even in Oman. And if I do travel, um, I've had the experience where I was, I spent a Ramadan in Canada. Uh, I went to an Islamic center there and same thing. It was, they were, you know, they welcomed me with open arms. And I find that wherever I go in the world. Now, to back to the book, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the research that went into it. Because as you say, you're not a scholar, but you spoke to some amazing people you know, and obviously yes. did a huge amount of research on this. The book is part memoir, it's part manual, a bit of a how-to mm-hmm. guide. Who did you have in mind when you were writing it, Matilde? Um, so, look, I had, first of all, um, my mom in mind because... Um, I was worried about how my mom would be concerned for me as her daughter, uh, her only child as well. Um, I didn't want her to think that I would lose myself in the process. I wanted her to see that I would become a better version of myself. And that was, I think, how my my parents' reaction was was key to me. And I thought, um, you know, if I can lay it all out in a book... um, she was my number one reader in mind <laughs> while I was writing it. And I wanted to convey a message of, of peace. I wanted to highlight the beauty of Islam. Um, and I wanted it to be very inviting. And um, and I also have a couple of friends as well who are very curious about Islam. And I, and I wrote the book through a lens of someone who wanted to answer all their questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I would say my, my own mother, and uh, I'm happy to actually say that she, she did convert to Islam Your a few years did. ago. Yeah. Really? Um, before, I wrote, I f- before the book was published, actually. It sounds like so. it was a, a book almost to yourself as well, the book that you maybe you needed back in oh, yes. 2001. 1,000%. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there, was, there were so many things that I didn't know that I wish I had known. And as you mentioned earlier, I did speak to other women because I didn't want this book to be all about my own experience. Um, where, you know, as women, we're all different and unique and different things matter to us. So I spoke to other converts. I actually sent out a questionnaire um, to converts from all over the world asking what they wish they had known. Um, and I wanted the book to have other people's perspectives and not just my own because I'm, you know, a French expat. But, you know, Islam really invites um, people from, you know, all, all, all walks of life, all ages, all nationalities. So I wanted it to embody everyone and not just me.
We're joined now by author Mathilde Lejeune. She's worked in PR. She grew up in the Sultanate of Oman, long way from home, south of France, and converted in her late teens. She's written a book called Big Little Steps. It is all about sharing her experience of converting to Islam and looking at the religion through the eyes of a woman, addressing some of the issues uh, that she found growing up, you know, grief, student, becoming a mother, uh, work and more. So I'm, I'm curious then, out of some of those life stages that I just mentioned, Mathilde, um, can you explain some of the um, issues that have kind of really resonated with readers? You know, it's, it's some really pertinent topics there. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think, um, you know, you've you've mentioned it perfectly. I th- since I converted at a, a young age, I was able to go through different stages of life. Um, I think something that resonated well was um, the I talk about grief and how Islam has helped me grieve and helped me heal um, as well. So I, I spend, um, uh, you know, a good amount of uh, time kind of talking about that. And I always kind of um, uh, blend it in with my own experiences. So I lost my brother at a very young age. He was 16 years old. I'm so sorry. Um, thank you. I was 10 years old at the time. And so obviously that was a lot to process at that age. And while I was going through this whole process of, um, you know, of, of faith and looking at other religions, I think that was kind of one of the... Um, one of the themes that I was kind of uh, aspiring to and I needed answers basically mm-hmm. and I think I'm very vulnerable in the book and I've seen that readers um, really resonate with my experience and 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 I've had discussions on how other people deal with their own grief um, uh, through faith or or other ways and and I think that's opened up really meaningful conversations. I think that's well, thank you for sharing that, first of all. And again, I'm so, so sorry to hear about your big brother. Um, grief is such a universal emotion, isn't it? And people you know, cope or don't cope in so many different ways. And I'm so grateful that you were able to find a way, if not at that time, but certainly to, you know, to kind of move forward. And we, we, you, don't, you don't move past grief, you move forward with yes. it, really, I think, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time. So thank you for addressing that as well. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, you don't purport to be a scholar, you're sharing your experience, but you did right. interview some really fascinating people who've also converted to Islam through the book and asking them, you know, what do you wish you'd known before converting to Islam? Tell us about some of the people you spoke to and did any of their answers surprise you? Sure. Uh, I think that was one of the most exciting stages of the book was to um, interview women that um, are either born Muslims, um, such as, for example, Halima, who is uh, a hijab uh, wearing uh, model. Um, and uh, she she was the first to compete on uh, Miss Universe, I believe, uh, with the hijab on. Um, but also I spoke to a lot of um, uh, women around the world to understand what they wish they had known, um, what they went through. Uh, since Ramadan is coming up, I think um, uh, how to fast was one of the key things that they um and myself included, were a bit confused about. Can you um, share some insights now for, yeah. anyone that, for anyone that is, you know, perhaps fasting for the first time or isn't Muslim, but perhaps is looking to be part of the fasting experience over Ramadan? Definitely. Give us your top tips, Matilda. Sure, sure. <laughs> so obviously um, what we have in the morning uh, as a breakfast or suhoor is very important. That will last you through the day. So I think for me and for other women, it took a lot of trial and error. Um, but having a very... Um, uh, a very rich sohor is very important. And I think a lot of people skip it because obviously we'd rather sleep, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, at 5 a.m. Um, but that's really key and it has a lot of um, blessings in it as well. So, I mean, I th- both on a spiritual side um, and um, 
uh, nutrition uh, side is is a very important meal to have, uh, but also how to break your fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember my first Ramadan, I would have a Diet Coke and I'd be like, yes, I'm done with my first day of Ramadan. <laughs> I'm having a Diet Coke. So no, that's not really the, the healthiest way to, to do it. Um, obviously, dates are rich with um, all nutrients that we lack through the day after a fast. So sugars, protein, uh, and so on. Um, and, and there's a special meaning to them as well. Exactly. Like the significance of the dates. Right, yes. Um, but also, I think uh, there were a lot of qu- questions around um, uh, how to pray during Ramadan. There are additional prayers uh, at night specifically. So um, h- how do you do these prayers? Uh, and I, I dedicate a section on my book on, on Ramadan as well. And these additional prayers and occasions such as Eid as well. What do you do during Eid? And I think especially for women who um, might be expats here in the UAE, you don't have a family. Exactly. That, that's such an interesting point in terms of being welcomed into a Muslim family and yeah. you're there as a mother and a wife perhaps navigating it yeah. for the first time. Right. That's a, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, I want to come to the text line because I'm going to try and squeeze in a few questions here. Yeah. Um, a message here um, from Late saying, Hi Matilde, which other women inspire you in Islam? So, you know what? Just last week, I was working on a campaign, as you mentioned, Ellen, I'm in PR. So I was working on a campaign with uh, Esma al-Badawi. Um, she is a basketball player and she uh, defied, she campaigned against, um, uh, with uh, the, the Football Federation for Women, uh, for Muslim women to wear the hijab on the court. Uh, and this is back in the US. And uh, she's such a source of inspiration. I think women like these, like her, who um, really make a difference, um, you know, through their social media, uh, social media accounts. Well, it's representation, isn't it? You yeah. Know, it's, it's, you know, girls like your daughter seeing, seeing women, you know, like them. Exactly. You know, you can't be it unless you see it. And yeah. I think that's, it's, there's, there's something to be said for doing it, but there's also something said for amplifying it, which is, I think, is where, right. where you're playing such an important role. Yeah. Um, a question about the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about the design. Now, it came out about five years ago. It's, it looks absolutely timeless, but it's almost interactive, Matilda. Tell us about the intentionality around that. Yeah, I think, you know, the design, uh, thank you for mentioning that. I put so much effort into it. Um, I think, first of all, I wanted it to be just as um, important as the content within the book. So the to- first of all, the, the tone of voice in the book is very feminine. I've had a lot of colleagues and friends tell me that they can hear me speak to them. So it feels very intimate when you're reading it. But I wanted the reader experience to be interactive, as you mm-hmm. said. So there's a lot of illustrations in the book. It looks very feminine. Uh, I wanted it to be a page turner and be enticing for readers to continue reading because all of us have you know, uh, dropped a uh, books halfway through. So hopefully I was trying to uh, catch their attention uh, throughout the book. There are like margins on the side, they can write notes. Um, and yeah, I worked with a Dubai-based illustrator to bring some of the stories, some of my stories to life as well. It's really beautiful. I've thank already you. taken a photo of it and sent it to my book club because I think <laughs> it would be a fantastic read for us during Ramadan oh, and you. we have you know, a mixed, mixed faith group. Um, a message nice. from Angie here saying, my mum lost her first child before me at the age of one. Um, she was born a Christian but converted to Islam to deal with her grief. Angie, thank you so much for sharing that. And the message here saying, please can you share the name of the book? As a mother of a teenage Muslim questioning her identity, this might be a good read. I will hand that over to you. So full name of the book and also where to find it, Matilda? Yes, so the book is called Big Little Steps, uh, 
a woman's guide to uh, finding a, a balanced lifestyle and a glowing heart in Islam. Uh, you can find it in the UAE, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi at Kinokuniya, Magrudi's on Amazon as well. It's available in Oman too. Uh, and I do have another recommendation I can share actually um, uh, that you can uh, definitely read. I think that will uh, resonate really well with your son. And that's um, uh, Letters to a Young Muslim. It was written by Omar Saif Robash. And it's a beautiful collection of letters uh, from a father to his son, guiding him through his teenage years um, and um, becoming a Muslim, and uh, it's it's so beautiful, and I, I highly recommend it. Umisa, thank you so so much. Really value your time, your thank insights, you. your honesty today. I think a fascinating timing of this topic ahead of Ramadan, and wishing you a blessed holy month ahead. You too. Um, as I said, if you want details of Matilda's book, just send me a message four zero zero one saying book, and I will hook you up. Women in the workplace, parents in the workplace, how to get back to the workforce when you feel like you've been pushed out. In a study by Reed, this is in the UK, seven in ten women have acknowledged that career breaks have made them less confident in their careers and diminished their self-assurance. And two-thirds of women are afraid to negotiate their pay which this research identifies as diminished self-assurance following a professional gap. We're speaking to one company now that's really starting to take a very different approach to sadly what many others in this part of the world and beyond when it comes to mothers in the workplace. We're speaking now to Beck joining us from Jacobs, an engineering company, and so much more. Beck, are you able to explain a little bit about Jacobs before we get into what you're doing over there? Absolutely, and thank you so much for having having us to join this afternoon. We're um yeah we're we're thrilled to to share the story and spread the spread the news. So so Jacobs, we are a, a global company um, of sixty thousand odd strong. Um, I like to call um, Jacobs people our Jacobs community because we're also spread across forty different countries. Uh, in the Middle East, we're growing at a very rapid pace. Um, even just in the last uh, year or two, we've more than doubled in size uh, across wow. our, our different locations in the region. Yeah, so Crikey. very, very exciting time. At its core, we deliver innovation. So whether that be uh, smart cities, um, uh, sustainability um, solutions, um, we really like to say we make the world smarter, more connected and more sustainable. You've got um, a really interesting job title, Beck. You are Senior Talent Partner of Inclusion and Diversity. And as you're saying, when you're expanding at that that pace, it's a really, really important role to be thinking about who's there, but who also could be there as part of the company. So um, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Women in Mind. And of course, we had International Women's Day just last week. Um, With your returnship programme, what gap did you identify that was something that you could truly address make a difference in a practical way not just policy absolutely Uh, yeah and that's the key it's the action behind policy I think um you know as inclusion and diversity you know rolls along and evolves uh companies um you know we all like to make very bold statements but what I'm very very proud and privileged to be a part of at Jacobs is the action that we put behind those bold statements so in 2019, we announced um, and and started working towards a global aspirational goal, which is linked to gender equality. And that's to see by 2025, a 40-40-20, so 40% women, 40% male and 20% of other genders. Um, so it's 
it's tracking exceptionally well. And I think mainly because of the strategy, the fo focus and the action. And so returnships were born for us at Jacobs. Uh, last year, we started discussing, researching and designing our program, but they have been around for quite some time globally since around 2008. Mm -hmm. And they were identified as an opportunity to I think support people in embracing that career break that you mentioned earlier, Helen. There is so much, um, I, I, or has traditionally been a lot of bias, um, whether it be unconscious or conscious bias towards what a career break may be, but at its core, our program, and I hope that when you do have the opportunity to speak with one of, some of our program participants today, we're encouraging our participants to embrace that career break. So, the, re the fact, it, it's a program that was designed not just for women, but the fact remains that globally, it is it is predominantly women who take a step away from their career. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that be through caring responsibilities as a parent or uh, elder care or extended family care, or for that matter, um, you know, to, to further education, it is predominantly women who do take a step away. So, you know, even just in the test case of advertising the returnship uh, program last year, late last year in um, in Dubai, uh, we we received uh, thousands of really? applications. This, yes. is, this is the thing, this, and I would imagine the vast majority did come from women. But this is the they frustration, did. isn't it? You know, the messages we've had today is there is just this enormous number of willing female workers who want to be in that workforce but can't find a way in because mm. of practical reasons an awful lot of the time to be honest um, and we saw this during the pandemic and unfortunately gender pay gap playing a big role in that if you've got to mm -hmm. be looking after the kids or you've got to be educating the kids then the person who's earning less is going to be the one to take a take a gap and gap sounds like a gap year that's <laughs> not a gap yeah. year a lot wouldn't that be nice <laughs> would be nice wouldn't it We're talking about getting back into the workplace today and joining us live on the line from Jacobs is the Senior Talent Partner Inclusion Diversity, Beck Roberts. Um, and I'm very curious, Beck, to get a bit of a read on what a returnship programme is, because as you said, you know, there are some similar-ish programmes around the world, but <laughs> to my knowledge, not many in the Middle East. So we've identified what the issue is what are some of the steps that you were taking to entice a workforce not yet in fact that's not, that's not true at all you weren't having to entice a workforce they were there chomping at the bit ready to get <laughs> back into the workforce just didn't know how to do it so what does it look like so i look i think the best way to explain how we've gone about in designing our program which first of all was to do a lot of research and model off what is best practice globally as you've noted um in the middle east we're very proud to um Hopefully, hopefully, be starting a, a some a bit of a movement and gain a little bit of momentum with a little bit more um, progress. So we've modelled off best best practice, as I said, and there's really three key pillars. Um, we're looking to refresh skills, we're looking to rebuild confidence, and we're looking to reignite careers. So our program is a cohort style. We thought it was just going to be so much more beneficial to bring the group together, which we've seen pay off dividends by way of how connected our group of program participants are. Uh, we have nine participants in total, which is just so wonderful to see they're supporting each other. Um, 
and really I think that's that's been one of the most beautiful things to see. So the refresh skills, the rebuild confidence, the reignite careers over a 16-week structured program, some people would perhaps, Helen, liken it to uh, a, an internship program, mm-hmm. which is a, a timed period of business exposure, training um, and uh, and development. We've added another layer in that we're so acutely aware, and, and me personally through two career breaks myself after the birth of both of my children, we are acutely aware of the new sense of stealth that mm-hmm. I think an Absolutely. individual needs to establish coming back from a career break. I think the personal demons to overcome, <laughs> you know, the chatter in your mind, talking yourself out of why instead of why you should. So it's a program that's been built around a focus on that personal development, the confidence rebuild, mm-hmm. and then our business leaders um, who are, you know, the, the line managers and the teams that surround our returnship program participants are providing that upskill. So whether it be time away and technology in a specific discipline has moved at the rapid pace that we know that it does. And so we need to wrap our arms and really help our participants in that development um, from a development perspective. But I think we're just making sure that the extrinsic and the intrinsic um, combine well and and provide the best opportunity for our our returnees because our intent at the end of the 16-week program is to be making permanent offers to join and, Jacobs, and the Jacobs community. Let's be clear. You're not doing this out of, you know, any act of, you know, charity or altruism. This is a great business opportunity to be getting some fantastic people back into the workforce. And I think that's something a lot of companies forget. And it's something that, you, you know, you mentioned there that that changed sense of identity and self. And that is, that's undeniable. I think when you have kids, something visceral, something cellular changes. It really, really does. Your priorities are shifted. Um, but for me... <laughs> For me, my priorities, I, I, and I've written, spoken about this extensively, I felt and I still feel that I am, I became a lot better at work after having kids, a lot better, because I was so much more focused. I was so much more productive. <laughs> my, husband, my, husband, my, my husband would be like, did you read that article on the Daily Mail? I was like, no, I wasn't reading that article. I was getting my work done so I could come home and hug my child. <laughs> I wasn't messing around like I used to before I had kids. Sorry to, yeah. my, sorry to my previous bosses. Um, but, you know... <laughs> But I think I think a lot of companies don't perhaps take into consideration some of the huge benefits of employing um, parents. You know, my goodness, anyone who's navigated the the candy aisle um, in a supermarket knows that art of negotiation. We know time management. We know. Yeah, we know. (laughs) We know multitasking. Have you recognized that? Do you feel like some employers do have a bias when they see that someone's had a career break, especially a larger career break on their CV back? Most definitely. And this is where I think we've been able to demonstrate. What, what is wonderful is that with this pilot program in the Middle East for Jacobs globally, and we're just about to launch our program in India, we're going to then launch in Australia and New Zealand, the Americas and the UK and Europe to follow. We've been able to demonstrate so quickly how phenomenal this talent pool is. And it is so unfortunate for everybody else because we're ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. It's just a so often ignored talent pool. Um, because of that bias of what does a career break mean? It, it, I sometimes struggle to get my head around it, but I'm so pleased to now have the success stories. We're at week eight of our 16-week program, um, and even during interviews before we started, business leaders from across the group were blown away by the talent. And I think what was beautiful to see um, 
it was really wonderful, a wonderful education experience for some who didn't necessarily understand mm -hmm. potentially what the opportunity was, but it's very, very, very quickly been demonstrated. The talent that we have in our cohort, we have economists, we have structural engineers, geotechnical engineers, electrical engineers, architects, contracts managers, project <laughs> controllers. I'm trying to think so I don't leave anybody out, but just the talent. We are um, going to be meeting a couple of women in, in this in yeah. this group after half past. Um, I wanted to ask about the kind of the flexible side, the practical side. Mm -hmm. You know, that was something that we're still talking about. You know, post pandemic, um, in terms of if that's been a big positive, I think I think it has a lot of people understanding that flexibility isn't just a women's issue; it's a, it's a human issue. You know, whether that is looking after, as you mentioned there elder care, kids, managing chronic illness, you know, all sorts of reasons why people might need more flexibility. We've had messages here saying for practical reasons, school pickup drop-ups, I'm looking for part-time work from home opportunities. Is anybody offering this? So if you are offering that, let me know, 4001. I'd love to share that with Zay. So what about that piece, Beck, you know, when, when it comes to some of the reasons that people perhaps haven't felt like they've been able to go back to work? Mm. Oh, look, and, and, and I think it's 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 absolutely... Uh, still an issue faced, unfortunately. I think I had hoped, which I think a lot of people did, that some of the silver linings that we might have been able to take away from the pandemic was that, you know, hybrid working, remote working works. Uh, it works for people mm -hmm. and it works for organisations. Um, you know, and again, throughout the pandemic, so many organisations were able to report increased levels of productivity, increased levels of engagement because of that balance that was created by being able to be your whole self at home, by being mm -hmm. able to be your whole self at work and manage that timing so much more easily without as much press pressure. We were thrilled with the changes for the labour laws um, in, in country, uh, was it 2019, 2020, with the offering of the part-time hours and engagement contracts. So we took our return ship to market as we are in every region that we launch, offering either a part-time or full-time participation, which will then be carried through. So if an individual has opted into a part-time arrangement and that continues to suit them if a permanent offer is made, they will be engaged on a permanent basis on a part-time work arrangement. If they are looking to scale up, then that's something that we're also um, going to be very supportive of. Our business in the Middle East, our business globally, uh, is still working to a hybrid work structure. So we have, um, and I think what is what is important to note there is that it's individual arrangements. Obviously, there's the importance of interacting and collaborating. I get a little bit of FOMO when I'm often working <laughs> from home a little bit too much. Um, but uh, I think it's that individually curated experience, which has been really important and very impactful. Absolutely. So, and, that, yeah. and that was exactly the theme of International Women's Day last week. It was about embracing mm. equity. And I think that importance between equality and equity is absolutely crucial. What might work for one person might not work for another. So looking at those personalised solutions, absolutely key. I won conversation this afternoon with the senior talent partner of Inclusion and Diversity at Jacobs. Beck Roberts is with us. And in just a few minutes, we're meeting two of the women who have been part of their returnship programme. Some of, of the reasons that perhaps they weren't in work and how ultimately this programme is helping them to fulfil those uh, amazing, amazing potential. We're going to be speaking to them next.
We're talking about returnships today. We've been in conversation with Beck Roberts. She's the senior talent partner of inclusion and diversity at Jacobs here in the Middle East. And we're just saying earlier, Beck, that when you announced this returnship programme, you had thousands and thousands and thousands of applications. And we've joined in the studio now by two women who are part of that cohort. Before we introduce Noor and Alina, I'd love if you wouldn't mind, and I'm gonna I'm gonna see their blushing faces in a few minutes, I'm sure. How on earth did you start to whittle down the people who you wanted as part of this programme? What were the criteria? So the eligibility criteria for the returnship programme is actually very high level, which made it harder for us to whittle it down. But what we did ask, uh, so to step back, the eligibility criteria is a career break, a minimum career break of one year, um, five years of uh, postgraduate experience prior to career break and able to commence in the returnship program when we were kicking off. So that was very high level. Um, Again, we didn't want to be too restrictive and we didn't want there to be, you know, reams and reams of you must have this and this many years and this many years because we know that's where women tend to opt themselves out of a process. Mm -hmm. But what we did ask for in our application uh, process was, you know, a statement of, of why. Tell us about your career break. Tell us how long your career break was. So already starting to get into that process of embracing the break, as we've mentioned earlier. And and it was really then through that application process and seeing how each of our participate each of our participants talked to their experience of career break, their experience in trying to return to careers, um, and obviously aligning then to the disciplines um, that we were offering, or the roles, should I say, that we're offering, uh, and the dis- disciplines in which they uh, they um, have developed skills prior to the career break. Well, we're going to be hearing from two of these participants right now. Joining us in studio is Noor, an economist, and Alina's with us, a project manager as well. Alina, tell us a little bit about your career history and the break that you found yourself on. Yeah, um, I completed my graduation in civil engineering in the year 2013, and I was qualified for a scholarship program for the master's, but my preference was to get some practical knowledge about the field and to get some hands-on experience before I, before I get more theoretical knowledge about the sectors. So I just rolled up my sleeves and dived into this endless, seamless sector of construction industry, and then here in UEA, I began my career with a construction company named Tabins Building Works. We were the main contractors for most of the DP World projects, that is in job supports. And and there I was seeked out for pressure cooker projects because uh, I, I think it's probably because I cut my teeth in a more impactful way and uh, I, I would be calm and chaos. Uh, so, <laughs> so they, teach they, me your ways, Alina. Teach yeah. me the ways. <laughs> so uh, there I functioned as everything, like from site engineer to an estimation engineer, then to contracts, and then to project management, and even in design as well and whatnot I just went into action mode so that's how I (laughs) dealt with the stress Wow well Uh, they're lucky to have you with the calm head and what was it like then trying to get back into work as you had a break of around 18 months is that right yeah right right so while I was uh, doing while I was working as a project manager I did my post graduation from Harriet Watt University as a part-time student because why I prefer to do evening classes is because I didn't want to take a career break Mm But unfortunately, a year after giving my uh, giving birth to my first baby, 
uh, I conceived again, but I had to undergo a lot of complications, and eventually, uh, it, eventually, it led to a miscarriage. I'm so sorry, Lena. So it was then I was forced to take a, a step back from my career and to take time off from my career. <laughs> But that phase was very uncomfortable. I was I was sitting between a past that is clearly behind me and a future that is still uncertain, and and the desperation. Like you had put a lot of effort to become a project manager. That too, in the contractor side, means mostly is a male dominant field. You've been proving yourself for years. Yeah, so I was so disappointed. But then my support system, my family. They helped me to get through this phase. My my mom, my superwoman, <laughs> I would say, because I lost my father at the age of one year. So she kept reminding me that I should be kind and patient with myself. And and my husband, my brother, my sister, those are the pillars of my constant support and encouragement. They kept me optimistic and then they said it's okay there's a hiring boom on the horizon as our economies tried to began to gain a, a fully reopen so which is true but it's sometimes about finding the right match between person and company you know between values and Beck saying there about it being a community there so it sounds like it sounds like you found your tribe and I um, we did just say this off air, and I'm okay to say this but Alina is currently pregnant and was pregnant when she joined the program so I right. think that's first of all Thank you for sharing what you've been through and huge congratulations on your pregnancy. I think it just actually speaks volumes of taking the decision to say, yep, you're pregnant. We're here for the the long haul and we'd love to welcome you upon this journey. So kudos to you, Beck. Thank you so much, um, Alina. And uh, Noor's with us as well. You're an economist. You've been working for nearly two decades across academia, private sector as well. How long was your career break, Noor? Uh, Yeah, that's right. Um, my career break was long, actually, probably among the longest uh, all the, of the, all the participants, uh, more than seven years. Um, but I have a Bachelor of Science in Electronics Engineering, a MA in Economics, a PhD in Economics. I have worked like three years as a postdoctoral research fellow at European University Institute in Italy. My research was awarded by a National Science Foundation, American Economic Association Fellowship, to spend a summer at Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Wow. Then I got a postdoctoral <laughs> fellowship at University of Oxford, and I taught uh, like courses there for three years, like tutorials. I also worked in one of the leading economic consultancies in London, uh, like doing research, in economic impact analysis, even uh, writing press releases. So really, I really was uh, invested in my career. Then uh, I got married, uh, <laughs> And Dubai happened. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's dual career search and it's always difficult. But anyway, in Dubai, I also uh, did some teaching in a few institutions here. But then I, um, we discovered that our son has um, some mild special needs, uh, like some motor coordination difficulties and fine motor skills. Um, they were mild, but uh, the impact initially at school was big. Like uh, he was struggling to adjust and... Um, I've realized that I need to be there for him, like mm-hmm. to support him fully. He really, it was a big project for me, like to understand what, why is he struggling with and how can we help him. And 
this included getting like occupational therapy, uh, speech therapy. Oh, it's you a know. full-time job. It's a full-time it job. It is in terms of, as you're saying, understanding what he was going through and navigating, but also connecting with the right people, coordinating appointments. Exactly. So I think, you know, I think that can't be underestimated to anyone out there who is going through this as... Uh, you know, in the family of anyone with any kind of additional needs, it's it really is significant. And you obviously got to a place where you felt like you wanted to be back in, in the workplace. Tell us a little bit about what you've gained from the returnship, and how has it been so far? Oh, it was amazing. Like I don't know, um, I've been looking for work. Like I, when I once I've decided that I want to go back to work, I was applying selectively, and I always had the option to go back to academia to teach. But I wanted to change my field. Like I want to go into private sector. Uh, it was uh, like much better than what I thought it would be, actually. Um, everything is really well thought of, structured. Uh, we were welcomed by every member of the team. I work as an economist in the strategic consulting practice of Jacobs in the Middle East. From the head of the strategic consulting practice to, to HR team, to everyone, like uh, our line manager, me- mentors, uh, colleagues, everyone was supportive. And we, have, we are given real opportunities like project work. Um, so it, it obviously helps you to gain your confidence because, mm-hmm. you know, you're working again. Uh, so that identity thing is just so, so crucial. Bex, I can see you looking, looking very proud there of these women and rightly so. But you should be very proud of yourself, to be honest. What, what message would you give to any company out there and whether that is someone in leadership, you know, head of HR or even you know, employees who'd like to petition for similar programs in their company. What would you like to see change in, if not every, but certainly the majority of companies so they can have access to such incredible talent as Alina and Nohu with with us today? I think what we have to keep front of mind, and this is more broadly in my role, focusing on inclusion and diversity, diversity hiring is not lowering the bar, it's widening the gate. We cannot be so close-minded So I would welcome from individuals looking to potentially find uh, a returnship program from uh, whether it be people within talent functions or HR functions or leadership roles across the Middle East. Um, I don't know if there's any way that I can leave my details, but I would love to share our story of of where we've looked for research, what we've followed from a best practice program um, structure perspective. Um, Because as I mentioned in my initial email, Helen, I... I just hope that the more we can share how phenomenal this experience has been for everybody um, within our organisation and the impact for our participants. And no, Alina, you just did such a beautiful job. Uh, I hope that more of the private sector will follow. Me too. Thank you, Bex. And um, by all means, I've got your email address. If anyone wants that, if you're happy for me to share it, then I'm... Please. No worries. So you can just send me, um, send me. I don't know, the word work on 4001 <laughs> and I will send you the email um, of, uh, of Beck who's been with us this afternoon. And thank you so much. Really is incredible food for thought. And it's, it just comes back to that question of why not? Why not more? Yes. Because what an amazing opportunity uh, to be tapping into a workforce who has got so much to offer and is desperate to be there. Beck Roberts, really appreciate your time this afternoon. Senior Talent Partner there of Inclusion and Diversity at Jacobs and to Alina and Nort from joining us in the studio too, who are part of that cohort. I have no doubt the first of many. And if you do want the details of Beck, just send me the word work and I will send you that email. <laughs> Thank you. 
And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.